0: On the Empire Podcast this week, suffragettes Sarah Gavron and Abby Morgan get our vote. No? Okay. While we talk Beatles and Heights with the great Robert Semeckis. All that and more. On the movie podcast, it thoroughly recommends having a German boss. Try it. You might like it. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I am joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning first up is our art house guru who's a man who just love the subtitle films he also loves music every yeah. week the office stereo is blasting out something that comes from phil this week he's just discovered abba's greatest hits it is of oh. course here we go hey. phil disemlian such a long How are you? setup
1: such a long setup for such a weak payoff but <laughs> yes. What I, can you do? I bought 10, but I thought it was the pearl Jow map but it wasn't. It was the, I got nothing! Every week, you break me with well, this. Well, stop liking films! Oh,
0: honestly. I like all things. <laughs> do You see, I did an House joke this week on, on yeah, the Yeah, I twits? did on Twitter. On I the know, Twits, I know. Yeah. You were in Muscling in on your territory. Because you are away soon, if you are leaving us, you're not
1: here next week. Where are you going? I'm going on holiday to Japan. Aha, uh-huh. I see. Is this a Kurosawa pilgrimage? In a sense, yes. In a sense, no. Okay. <laughs> a bit of both. Bit of, both. Bit of both. I'm not going out into the uh, the countryside, mm-hmm. the settings of Hidden Fortress and such. But I will be in Tokyo. There you go. So, oh, so you're going to see Godzilla. Pretty. So cool. I'll see Godzilla and a Godzilla pilgrimage. Godzilla Palooza. Uh,
0: You've already heard her voice. Next up is our geek queen, who also loves music. We all love music here at Empire. We sure. have we wear several hats. She's a big fan of the BG's number one smash, You yep. Winchester again. Oh it's it's Helen Ooh. O'Hara.
2: Oh that was that was belabored. Listen,
0: we're at episode 182. Help me. <laughs> Please have something else. It's
2: almost like you need another joke, isn't it? Almost. I, just,
1: I need more than just art house stuff and dragons. <laughs> I'm dying here. Wait um, a second. Isn't he called Dean Winchester? Yes. Can you go like Dean on me or something? <laughs> Wait, that sounds Wait,
2: wrong. hello. That doesn't sound oh. right.
1: Uh-oh. <laughs> NSFW. Sorry for that. <laughs> My word. I didn't think that through. Dean on me oh. when you're not strong. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Gosh.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah, I say. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, I apologise. Welcome both. I hope you're both you know, doing adequately in all your endeavours.
2: Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for that warm welcome.
0: <laughs> Thank you kindly. Uh, should we have some questions? Sure. Go on then. We're going to have two questions this week because I shook the Empire podcast question tin the other day and it was empty. <gasps> we actually have a tin that I print the questions off. Yeah, and I put them on paper and I put them in the tin and then I rattled the tin the other day and it was empty and it was just a Mars wrapper in there which I had nothing to do with <laughs> we asked for people to fill up our tin so to speak rude as heck on the twits got in touch and asks a variation on an old question a classic question but one I think we should tackle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would you rather fight 50 duck sized Tom Hardys or one Tom Hardy sized duck
2: I personally would say one Tom Hardy sized duck because Tom Hardy himself even if he were in diminutive form Mm -hmm. is a formidable opponent whereas ducks (laughs) are just not
0: it depends doesn't it really what accent is he doing (laughs) is it like 50 tom hardy's all doing different accents
2: Terrifying. Or is
0: it 50 Ron Cray ducks going, one Cray sausage. Then in that case, you know, that's tricky.
2: What if they were all doing that Russian accent from Child 44? That would be terrifying. That would be
0: terrifying, yeah. Or Bane, 50 Bane ducks coming at you.
2: (laughs) I'm going to kill you now. Quack, 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 quack.
1: What a lovely, lovely duck. Phil, what was your answer? I can't remember.
2: It was one Tom Hardy-sized duck.
1: (laughs) I'll go with the other one. Do I now need a rationale for this? Yes. Yes. Many tiny Tom Hardy-sized ducks. Tom Hardy ducks.
2: No, many tiny Tom Hardys.
1: Oh, many tiny Tom Hardys. Yeah, they're the size is 50 Tom Hardys the size (laughs) of ducks. 50
2: tiny Tom Hardys? Is this...
0: No. You're going to be swarmed. No. I don't think so. That's a lot of intensity. Yeah, they, they would take you down.
2: They would. I mean, they had the
0: potential to be armed, for one Mm -hmm. thing. So they armed themselves with knives and forks. They could just hack Mm. away at your legs. Down you would pop, suddenly Mm.
1: exposing all the fleshy bits Mm. and the jugular. I'm afraid the Hardy Boys would take you down. It'd be a bit like arriving in Lilliput and finding it populated by Bronsons. (laughs) (laughs) There wouldn't be a good place to be. Yeah, it would be exactly like that. So I'm probably going to backtrack and go with what you said. But it's worth pointing out this question or a variant of it. On it was met, was asked to James Cameron in that Reddit AMA he did, and he really went detailed, as you'd expect. He took it so seriously. He James Cameron. He's actually heck done out it. of it. <laughs> he said, "Yeah, he went off and he went off and motion captured the entire thing just to find out." He was asked if he'd rather fight one horse-sized duck. Okay, or a hundred one. duck-sized horses. Sure. He says that ducks can fuck you up, I wow. quote. They can. So, yeah, but so can a horse. Yeah, but he wasn't so worried about the horse.
2: Oh, that's foolish.
1: He said foolish. that the, what's the horse going to do? It's going to kick you in the ankle or rear up, for one thing. But mm. apparently in the past, they were horse-sized ducks, and they were horrible predators, <laughs> and there was a name for them. Bastards. Yeah. <laughs> Duck bastards. <laughs> Duck bastards. <laughs> but also you have to think about this if you take this to its logical conclusion
2: i mean yeah right. logical okay. definitely
0: it's a tom hardy sized duck or 50 duck sized tom hardys so i'm thinking if you were to defeat them which would be tastiest now Ooh. a big duck big duck yeah and you're having a lot of crispy pancake a, lot of crispy it's, cramp, it's, a little
2: bit of duck a lorange
0: absolutely but i'm not sure if i'd want to eat 50 tom hardy's i
1: mean he's moorish but <laughs> he, is I, 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 he is i could probably I how could probably have you do... gone from a f- bitter fight for survival to dinner without any kind of like recovery period you just...
0: think about it phil you've just killed 50 tiny Tom Hardys. I don't
1: think you'd kill 50 tiny Tom Hardys. Yeah, that's my problem. I don't think you'd kill more than one or two before. Look at me.
0: You. I'm a human rock.
1: <laughs> I am looking at you. You're a pebble.
0: Say, for the sake of saying, I've killed 50 Tom Hardys. Doesn't matter how. Maybe I haven't bested him in 50 combat, as they say. Maybe I've done something clever. Maybe I've poisoned him or something. Anyway, so they're dead. Mm-hmm. So you'd eat them, right? Yep because <laughs>
1: why <would> no you... <laughs> no wait no 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 why would you no. eat all these <laughs> how has this become a thing about food do you remember the harry house and cyclops movie they didn't kill cyclops and think mm, yum dinner let's carpaccio this bad where'd the
0: skeletons come from how at one point they must have had oh, <laughs> tasty mean, it,
1: flesh it's a good question but why bit of garlic mm. Mm. a tom hardy sized duck is like an ostrich right to get back to the question here <laughs>
2: Well, I have a genuine question about size, actually. But are we talking, like, mass? Are we talking height? When we say 50 duck size Tom Hardy's are we talking in terms of height from the ground are we talking about length you know along the back of the duck because that makes a big difference in terms of size it does I'm not sure what size measure we're taking here and therefore I can't possibly <laughs> we can't it. answer
1: the question what's <laughs> the next question
0: the next question you'll be delighted to know is from at Kev underscore McCabe who asks what's the best musical sequence in non-musicals for example Johnny Be Good in BTTDF which is Back to the Future obviously yes. Twist and Shout in Ferris Bueller
2: oh that's brilliant
0: there you go that's it that's it <laughs> I, actually, uh,
2: yeah. I, I do think those might be the two. By the
0: way, before we get into this, last week's question, uh, which was about the greatest films that had the same names. Yeah. And you said Spellbound was the correct answer. It is And this answer. week, people have been sending us in all sorts of really good answers. Frozen. Frozen is a good
2: two one. Two films
0: called Frozen. There's the Adam Green film, yeah. Frozen, in which people are stranded on a ski lift while wolves... And one of them is Iceman, weirdly enough, uh, Sean Ashmore. So then wolves are, are beneath them. And then there's the other film, Frozen, which I'm not quite sure what it's about.
2: I don't think it made much of an impact. It didn't make
0: much of an impact. Then there's Legend, of course, which starred two regular-sized Tom Hardys, and the other one which starred uh, Tom Cruise, who's... Also uh, regular-sized. Also regular-sized. Thank you for your answers. Also, uh, someone said, fight scenes in the rain. Why didn't we say Blade Runner? Didn't we? I'm sure we did. I thought we did. Best musical sequences in non-musicals, Hell's Bells.
2: I have a very soft spot for the lip-sync performance to Otis Redding in Pretty in Pink. I think that's the best bit in that entire film. So much about the rest of the film annoys me to death. Mm -hmm. She cuts up two really nice dresses to make one hideous monstrosity. And this is supposed to be her big win at the finish. And everyone's like, oh my God, you look so cool. And No, she doesn't. She has never looked cool. It's now been 30 years. And at no point in fashion during that time has that dress ever looked other than shit. Let's be honest here. Also, pretty in pink. I'm not sure that's the right colour for her, but whatever. The ducky scene with the lip syncing with the Otis writing is easily the best bit. in the film,
1: okay, good one. They're often the best bits in films, aren't they? These yeah, moments. they can be. I think I've got three that are all the best bit in the films that they're in. Okay, one of them would be all the notes in 500 Days of Summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I love which Joseph Gordon-Levitt sells and is beautifully done when he looks in the mirror and the reflection is Han Solo looking yeah. back at him and it captures that sense of the infinite possibilities of love how are we going to define this by the way do we need to well, I'm just wondering for what's example, with you and your rules I'm sorry you're just a really rule maker but does it have to be
0: diegetic or non-diegetic for example mm-hmm. Johnny yeah. Be Good. Martin Fly's playing the mm-hmm. guitar. That sound is coming from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Twist and shout again. That's being performed on the float. Either you wouldn't just throw it open wide open. No, I
2: think it probably does have to be because otherwise there it's in just the a director's yeah.
0: choice of song over a like, scene. So
2: I would allow, for example. Tiny Dancer, yep. but I would not necessarily allow a montage just cut to a cool tune, and I'm totally blanking on an example. Although there are many,
0: and but Martin Scorsese, anything Scorsese, and you think Scorsese. Yeah. 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 Okay. So
2: I wouldn't allow that if it's a montage. Mm-hmm. If it's like walking into Copacabana and you can hear the music playing, mm-hmm. that's fine. I have a couple more that have just come to mind. Well, I don't know. Some like it hot. Is that a musical? Because there's several musical numbers.
0: I, I've never thought of it as a musical. No,
2: I haven't either. So I, f- I would put in. But hey,
0: nobody's perfect. So
2: I would put in uh, probably I'm through with love. From that, I think, is brilliant. Also, what might be the correct answer is the Marseillaise in Casablanca.
1: People out there are probably thinking right now, that's all well and good, Helen, but what about Phil's other two suggestions? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to them. This is a good one, though, but, I mean, is it diegetic if it's in hot rod for instance if it's john farnham's you're the voice where's the music coming from there's people yeah. singing at one point yeah but who's playing they are, the- They're lip syncing to it yeah absolutely but where's the music coming from where does that fit into your
0: well hot rod framework? breaks every major rule of filmmaking as we all know and gets away with it yeah i would
1: say that's a good example do you love that and the other one is justin timberlake in southland tales doing that weird sort of dreamy sequence to the killers do you know what i mean where he's I walking do. through and there's yes. it's a little bit like similar vibe to the strange dream sequence in Big Lebowski I suppose it does a little bit yeah a little bit so that sort of otherworldly vibe
2: isn't it weird that Justin Timberlake is often the best thing in a bad movie I give you the love guru oh yeah <laughs> who would have thought
1: <laughs> he's in In Time isn't he yes he is Doesn't... the Andrew Nichol film yeah he isn't is not that yeah.
0: Brilliant. Well, no, he isn't not,
2: maybe not in that one but in bad doesn't... movies he's usually really good
1: i got a couple I mean there's loads and people are going to
0: be writing and going oh, how did you miss that again Shawshank for example the bit where mm. the, the opera is played I think it's from The Marriage of Figaro it's played over the the prison loudspeakers and all the the people stop and they go oh and then Morgan Freeman does the voiceover, and it's lovely. Uh, Bill Hader was probably part of Hot Rod, and he and Kristen Wiig do a great lip sync scene in "Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now." There's tons of great things. I'm always mentioning Top Secret on the podcast. Yes, it has so many good songs and musical sequences, including probably my favourite, is the bastardisation of "Are You Lonesome Tonight." <laughs> Which, I, I love Skeet Surfing. I love all those yeah, songs. Yeah. But th- I love that song so much with the <laughs> shop at Macy's. <laughs> shop at Macy's and lovely Lovely tonight. tonight. Is your kitchen a sight? <laughs> it's amazing. Christine, John Carpenter's Christine. Lovely use of uh, 50s rock and roll songs. And that Christine, the evil car plays to either lure people in or let us know the audience what she's thinking at any given point. Blue Velvet, you're talking about great lip syncing scenes. Dean Stockwell, lip syncing to In Dreams in Blue Velvet is, is fantastic. And Anchorman is a couple as well. There's Afternoon Delight and Anchorman. You're talking about musical sequences and all musical Musical. They cut out of Anchorman 2 a fantastic musical number in which Ron and the gang discover what it was to be gay. It's every bit as amazing as that sounds, and they cut it out. It's in the
1: different version, but it's it's very good. On a Shawshank connection, Rita Hayworth in Gilda. Yeah, put the blame on me at the end is stunning, stunning. Or Michelle Pfeiffer in Fabulous Baker Boys. There's very many. Does it count if they're actually just singing in their singers? No, it's... if it's not a
2: musical, if it's not a musical,
1: yeah,
0: it works. if it's just like one so, song, they yeah. just do or like
2: Cameron songs. Diaz in The Mask.
1: Or did Jim Carrey in the
0: mask. Sure. That's what, nine entries. I'm sure you have many more that we have missed. So by all means, do send them in. We'll hopefully read out the ones that we got wrong or forgot on next week's show. (laughs) If you wish to have a question read out on the Empire podcast, do send them in. Please leave the 50 duck-sized Tom Hardys for a few (laughs) years. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. We're on Facebook empire magazine and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com right it's time now for our first guests sarah gavron's suffragette is the tale of the brave women who put everything on the line to secure the female vote in this country it's out on monday it's got an all-star cast carrie mulligan meryl streep helena bonham carter brendan gleason ben wishaw anne-marie duff anne-marie duff romilly garai romilly garai absolutely gavron and her writer the brilliant abby morgan came into the booth to talk to phil
1: recently enjoy we're delighted to be joined in the Empire podcast by Sarah Gavron and Abby Morgan, the director and screenwriter, respectively, of Suffragette. Welcome.
3: Thank you. <laughs>
1: Thanks Thank for you coming in. This has obviously been about a six-year process of bringing the film to the screen, and you've had many different drafts. It was going to be told from the perspective of Romilly Garay's character, mm. rather than Carrie Mulligan. Is that a film that you could see being made? Would it have lost a lot of its power telling it through her eyes?
3: Well, Abby had written this character of Maud who was in those drafts and she seemed like such a contemporary and exciting way into the story, this ordinary woman who had no entitlement and and was willing to sacrifice so much that we became excited about telling her story, didn't we?
4: Yeah, and I also think when we started to align this kind of upper middle class woman with this working class woman, you realised that the kind of breadth of journey was sort of greater for Maud. You know, we created a character who was actually anti-suffrage in many ways at the beginning of the film and then gets more and more drawn into it, and that infects Alice. And so economically, it became really interesting for a woman who would be incarcerated, as you would be, if you were going to join the militant suffragettes. That would create real jeopardy about your career, whereas it wouldn't for a kind of upper-middle-class lady who was a lady of means. So it put a lot more pressure on that journey as well, which seemed more interesting.
1: One of the challenges is just settling upon an entry and an exit point Mm. for the story, Mm. because you could run up until mm. suffrage is, mm. is implemented, mm. which you don't do. Mm. You could start at the very, very beginning, mm. which you don't do. Mm. It, what's harder, to find the entry point or the exit point?
3: Well, I think one of the brilliant things that Abby did, because this movement spanned over 50 years, you know, and you could have told it in a, in a long TV series, but Abby found this moment of change, this critical couple of, well, year and a half really, that led up to the death of Emily Warren Davison, and when militancy was at its height.
4: And I think in some ways, you know, I've worked on a number of biopics, we've worked on an adaptation before, so you have a framework, but often it's a huge framework, as Sarah said, so what you're trying to do is find the kind of compelling moments of change and what was very useful for us is when, I, when we started to look at this period moving into military. There were like three or four very key historical moments that I just kept on thinking and I think Sarah did as well from reading them was they were just great visual epic moments. So you've got everything from the night of the broken panes when they paraded up Oxford Street Mm. and broke windows right the way through to a big riot at the Houses of Parliament through to the kind of beautiful Derby and immediately you start to realise that actually they also have tonally they have very different feelings to them. You know, you have the affluence of Regent Street, you have the kind of gritty kind of centre of power in Westminster and then you have the kind of beautiful sort of sedate kind of mix of classes at Epsom and so all of those I thought they're just beautiful and they they really became for me my touchstones and I think certainly within the film they become what is a very gentle and very seemingly quite quiet journey of a quiet woman actually as her journey grows they start to sort of reflect and parallel the big historical moments yeah. and so it's I think it's as much about Maud's relationship with these big moments as history as well as her kind of growing movement towards becoming a true suffragette
1: Black Friday which I think has been Stolen by Amazon since then. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. yeah Black Friday, Black Monday. I mean, Black, it's, Black Monday.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. That yeah.
3: was an astounding sequence, and it was yes, as Abby says, it was it was something we absolutely wanted to get into the film because mm. just seeing the brutal way that the women were treated and those accounts that we read in the Museum of London, you know, there were diary, unpublished diary accounts of women who'd been through that and been assaulted yeah. essentially by the police. Really, it was visceral and made you realise what they went through.
1: It's such a powerful and important story. And I wonder, as a filmmaker, you made a documentary in Greenland, which Mm -hmm. is not something a lot of filmmakers Mm -hmm. have done. You shot part of Brick Lane in in West Bengal and had an encounter with a cobra, I understand.
3: Yes, that's right. I (laughs) I want to hear more about the cobra.
1: (laughs) We love cobra stories on the Empire Podcast. Carrie Mulligan is your sort of protagonist Mm -hmm. in the story. She forgave you for making her sing in shame.
4: Yeah, she definitely forgave me. I mean, I think what's exciting about Carrie as an actress is that she somehow manages to kind of traverse something that feels both period and contemporary, and she has that quality. She's very of the now, and it's partly because I think she's so centred as an actress. And, you know, having worked with her on shame and seen her in shame and seen the way she adapts and evolves a character, it was really exciting to bring the suffragette film because in some ways, I think, you know, you know that you're up against a lot of baggage and a lot of expectations. You know, we expect to see corsets, we expect to see ladies with tambourines, we expect to see the kind of... Mary Poppins' view of the suffragette. And I think, you know, all, I think actually all of our actresses in very different ways cut against that. Certainly Meryl, you know, is an amazing advocate for women in the industry and Carrie has that kind of raw vividness and Helena is an amazing character actress and yet here I think she's, you know, in a really stripped-back performance. And then you've got anne and Romola. So it's a real mm. ensemble piece for those actresses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great cast. The thing that struck me about it is it has a very modern aesthetic. Reminded me a little bit of some Paul Greengrass movies. I mean, you clearly we're moving, trying to get us far away from the kind of handsome period piece as possible.
3: Well, in writing the script, you know, Abby kept on discovering the sort of underside, the subverting our expectations of a period drama and finding these characters, bringing them out of the shadows and and it felt very real and, and oddly contemporary actually. There they were talking about issues which we're dealing with today across the world. I'm a great admirer of those beautiful period dramas but we come to expect them to look in a certain way and we wanted to subvert that and connect you and put you in the shoes of a woman walking down the street in 1912 and what it felt like to work in that lawn and live her life and one of the ways to do that was we created these 360 sets whenever we could so we could shoot in all directions and allowed the actors quite a lot of freedom and captured their performance rather than staged it for the camera whenever possible so it took in some ways a documentary aesthetic here and there to to the way we shot it and always had two cameras if not three
1: there's so many things that i didn't know when i watched this film i didn't realize for instance that the term suffragette was originally a term of ridicule and derision Mm -hmm. that the press kind of applied to this group, I had no idea that they had their own colour scheme. Has anyone seen the poster from a distance and sort of thought you were making a movie about Wimbledon?
4: <laughs> good point, actually. It's My the gosh. green, green,
1: purple, and white, Yes, very right?
4: true. I, I think we know what happens when we make films about Wimbledon, don't we? don't do <laughs> that well. I think what was interesting is it's part of the kind of underground movement and the way those women had to bury their allegiance and at the same time kind of codify it. And one mm. of the things that was really interesting when we worked on the film, and it was in the film for a while, was the fact that the women used to send coded messages to each other as well. So the jewellery and the kind of reflection of the colours in jewellery was a way of saying to other women, yes, you know, I'm a suffragette too, but also they would send these coded cards to each other each day and... For example, all the prime ministers and members of Parliament, they all had names that were based on trees. So I think I think Asquith was an elm, was he? Yeah, yeah.
3: and Lloyd George, George was oak, oak. maybe. Yeah.
4: And actually one of the women threw an axe into a carriage in Dublin, um, which was meant to fell the trees, you know, fell the great forest of Parliament. In a way, as a dramatist, I think it's great because there's so much to play with, but also it's, it really sort of shows how subvertive they were with their tactics and their strategy.
1: It echoes of the Battle of Algiers in there as well. The, yeah. The, I mean, the women played an yeah, important... Talked about
4: that actually. We did. Yeah.
3: It was a reference in some ways. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of interesting in terms of reference films as a director. You move through different films as they become relevant to whatever project you're doing. And on one hand, you had those big battles and and scale. And then on the other hand, you had we were looking at female centric films like Silkwood or mm. Norma Ray, and you know, films about women did you, finding did, their voice.
1: Did you talk to Meryl about Silkwood?
3: We did talk to Meryl about Silkwood. Yeah.
1: What did she say about making a film about a female? protagonist then compared to now is i mean you've both sort of mentioned how hard it is to get a film made without a male mm, lead mm. Has, has that really changed much in this in sort of 30 years since then
4: well it kind I of hasn't hasn't i yeah. think what's interesting about having meryl at the heart of a film and you know it's a very important but very 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 small it's a cameo really you know and it's an iconic actress playing an iconic part but more than that she's such an incredible advocate for the industry and i think we've both been at TeleRide with her and sat on a panel and one of the things that's fascinating to me is you realize the breadth of a career that she's had and you realize that actually she was part of such a small handful of women who were able to really sell a movie and so you look at the way she's moved from something like the deer hunter into those supporting roles into being absolutely center stage and not just the kind of wife of and you think that actually that's a combination of tenacity and also just the sheer power of her Mm. talent which is so extraordinary but it has not come without a fight and i think she's been incredibly good at and gracious about not engaging with that and it's really been in the last few years that i think the industry has caught up and said let's address it as a result i think she's becoming an amazing advocate to talk about that and the kind of inequality within the industry
1: as a lovely vignette that she did two days filming as Emmeline pankhurst in her cameo role but an important obviously central part of the film and then she stayed an extra day to do the reverses yeah, with so the with the extras just,
3: I know i mean she did the off screen speech so that the supporting artists had her to respond to well initially on the first day we shot the supporting artists responding to her but then we wanted our key crew our ensemble to respond to her and she wanted to be there so she did stay that whole evening just delivering the speech over and over again for them which is extraordinary for an actress to be that generous i mean well they are she's very generous and they are often but that really was beyond the call of duty
4: i heard a wonderful quote the other day from someone who said what's the point of this film women have got equality and actually you know i think on many levels it's very easy to say i feel really equal with my partner my my lover my wife my daughter i see her just the same as i do my son but ultimately it's just not adding up statistically you know we know how many i mean how many you know statistically in terms of how many women make films so you know even in a film festival which is focused on strong female directors and and writers it is still 80% male directors on this film festival coming up so i still think that we know that actually, we've got a fight to go. So I like to think that all the work that we're doing is just part of just saying let's just let's just have equal storytelling. Let's just start to look at those stories that haven't been told before, and let's look at those women that haven't been to- talked about before.
3: And it feels what's exciting at the moment is it's part of the conversation, and that feels so important in changing the way it is.
1: We talk about the mm. Bedchdale mm. to have Stephen on the podcast quite a mm. lot and then the number of films that pass it or
3: we pass it with flying colors you
1: guys you guys ace it
4: oh my god well we we knew some of the answers you know we just we looked to <laughs> we thought it was, it's pretty basic you know i mean i mean believe it or not do women do talk about something other than their relationships you know mm-hmm. they really do. I mean I think I probably had at least one conversation with woman today where I did talk about something other than my marriage. So ready today. <laughs> yeah, no amazing, isn't
1: it? <laughs> I think the statistics were something like 17% of films
3: released last year were made by women. Um, I think it's
4: less. Than, it's less. Than, I mean it varies it's,
3: year in year out between 1 and 12% of Yeah, yeah. I mean,
4: and to be honest I think these numbers are getting a bit confused at the moment <laughs> because I keep adding on and taking away but I think ultimately it's 17% of films had women in central roles. I think that's the difference. I thought it was that statistic, because that's one the of the thing things. It's than less than a third of films have women in central roles, and most films. But to be honest, I think the great thing with statistics is you can always find another one, you know. so
1: <laughs> There are more out there, usually, yeah. 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 Well, do you think it's important that big blockbusters start to have female directors? Is that going to make a difference? I
4: you know, it's a bit like the question I had on the way here on another interview where they said, you know, you seem to write strong women. And I go, oh, note to self, must write weak women. I mean, <laughs> ultimately, you know, most male directors don't get Ask that, you seem to write really strong men. I mean, it's some, so, and I think it's the same question about do you think blockbusters should start to look at having female directors? Well, they should just start looking at having more interesting and complex variant of directors and all i would say is that there are some brilliant female directors out there and i wonder why they don't get a look mm. in. so i think it's a bigger question about why are women not being encouraged why are they not being given the confidence why are they not being given the training and probably why there are not enough role models out and so i think the more women you obviously see leading and heading up a blockbuster the more that says we can do it and i'm sure we can i think we've been able to do most things so in the same way as i would expect you know a man to be able to do a romantic film i hope a man can direct a chick-fil-a I mean i think we've got got a female ghostbusters coming up directed by a man Mm. that seems like a wonderful marriage so it does i mean i
3: think yeah i think we want more women behind the camera and we also want more diversity in general behind the camera we want we want different stories reflected and that does come with changing who you've got behind the camera so i think you know i'm really interested in looking at female stories because that's in my dna and i would like there to be more of them out there for me to watch
1: are there any other films that have covered the suffragette movement apart from mary
3: poppins Not the British movement. No. No, there's been some fantastic...
4: There's been a couple of American films. There's been a TV, a a British TV show. Was it BBC? Yeah, Shoulder to
3: Shoulder, which was fantastic. And then lots of really, really strong documentaries, but never a narrative cinema film which does seem astounding, and it's taken 100 years, yeah.
4: Yeah, and I think the thing that's amazing is that actually there were so many extraordinary women, you know, the the working-class women, Hannah Mitchell, Mm. Annie Kenny, you know, there were also, obviously, the Emmeline Pankhurst and the whole of that family, you know, extraordinary, and Emily Wilding-Davison deserves a film of her own, you know. Mm. So, you know, there are so many different stories to be told, I think, in this. I imagine and I hope there will be more.
3: I hope so. You know, we have lots of stories about other political movements. Let's have more about this.
1: Have you two talked about a third collaboration
4: Yes. We're talking about it at the moment, though. Right now. Um, yeah, Continue and, uh, talking about well, that's it. that's really, no, I think it's really enjoyable. I mean, I think, you know, it's such a brilliant working experience and I absolutely love working with Sarah, but also more than that is that, you know, in a Hollywood industry that cuts writers continually if they don't make the grade, what's been wonderful for me is working with a collaborative team who I know really well, who understand that it may take several drafts to get somewhere. And so I think that's something we'd definitely like to build on. I mean, the other thing, I watched a great documentary the other day called The First Eight. It was about a group of female Air Force pilots during the Second World War who took the planes to the front line and I thought God I've never heard that story and it's not something that I will tell but I came away thinking that's the thing there are so many elements of history that when you start to say okay so where are the female heroes or where are the female stories you start to find them and I think that's probably true of contemporary history as well so I am sure somewhere amongst there that Sarah and I will dig up something as we tour backwards and forwards to America we sit on planes and talk about it
3: we do and we're excited about the possibility of it
1: Marvis thank you so much Abby Morgan and Sarah Gavron for joining us on the Impo Podcast
3: thank you thank you
1: do you
0: see anything that happened last night at the LFF opening? Yes, I did. Which, of course, Suffragette was the opening film in the LFF and then a protest group protesting against domestic abuse of women basically just chained themselves to railings and lay down on the red carpet and disrupted it. I mean, it, it was, was uh, it
2: was beautifully thematic. You've got to give them that.
0: Almost as if they'd planned it. <gasps> Dun, 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 dun. No, I'm not saying they planted those, sure. as the people behind the film. I'm saying that the The protesters. Group, yeah. yeah. Sisters Out. is that what it's
1: called? I believe so. Sisters Out. Who's going to protest at the closing gala of the Steve Jobs movie? Well, because people who you angry are. That they haven't been able to. Me. You'll be there because a a protest, th- once, I'm once the
0: film's over then what can you talk <sighs> about? There's, that's it. Oh
1: my God, you're right.
0: Are like me if the Marvel Cinematic Universe ever ended. they were good?
2: Sarah Gavron and Abby Morgan?
0: They were. It's a very good movie. So let's talk about some movie news. There's a lot of stuff that's happened this week.
2: Mm. Should we start with Star Wars? Yeah! Star Wars Episode 8. We don't have a title for it yet, other than that. Uh, we do know, of course, that Ryan Johnson is writing and directing. We do know that Benicio del Toro is aboard as some sort of bad guy. And of course, Daisy Ridley will be reprising her role <gasps> in it. But she will not be alone among the girls. Because we now know that Gugu and Batha Raw will be joining her. She is, of course, the gorgeous and very, very talented star of Belle and Beyond the Lights*. And I give you her previous CV because we have no idea what part she'll be playing here. Because, of course, it's well under wraps. It's under more wraps than a Pashmina factory. Vader. <laughs> She's Vader. Chewbacca. I mean, I think that would be a waste. Leia. That would be acceptable, but okay. unlikely, if I'm honest. I mean, you tried. Is Ryan Johnson
0: in London at the moment? There's I a lot of people in London, Scott Derrickson's here prepping Doctor Strange, Is about
1: to shoot pass.
0: We should just ask him.
2: <gasps> Let's do that. So that's exciting. Um, and there were some
1: other actors obviously were linked with that, weren't there? And yeah, Tatiana, Maslana. Tatiana Maslany.
2: Tatiana Maslany um, of mm. Orphan Black was linked. We're not sure if it's the same role, actually, because we know that her name was up. Uh, Gina Rodriguez mm-hmm. from Jane the Virgin and Olivia Cooke were up as well. It's not clear if it's the same role or a different role we basically have no information on that. The one thing we did hear this week is Benicio Del Toro, who was talking to us about Sicario, his new yeah. film that's out this week said that Johnson's approach is to bring a cool sci-fi realism to it. He's apparently uh, he's <clears> one of those <throat> new talented people that Star Wars is hiring to infuse the franchise with new steroids. Yes. Now that is illegal, so we don't <laughs> actually... He's in
1: Sicario, he's learnt nothing
2: I know. Come on. Drugs are bad just say no, Benicio. <laughs> anyway it's very exciting and she's a very, very very good actress so mm-hmm. I'm personally quite happy about that
1: absolutely it's
0: it's all good episode 8 Benisa de Toro is likely to be in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 as well isn't he or volume 2 to give it his, his correct name hey sure. look, he is here's me talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe but I learned something about him as well that's out about 5 weeks maybe even less after episode 8 in 2017. So if you like your Del Toro space operas, then you're in for a treat.
1: Hmm. I, I learned that he goes around, he likes to go around Disneyland with Rod Stewart, and Rod <laughs> Stewart picks the rides, apparently. But Del Toro's <laughs> going to own Disneyland. He's in all of the major franchises from now, so they could be its own corner. I've just realised Del Toro Land. I talked to Guillermo Del Toro last week
0: for a special, big long interview special, which will be up next week at the time of Crimson Peak, and I didn't ask him about taking Ryan Gosling to Disneyland. Where do I hand in my gun and my badge? Because that is just, that's negligent.
2: Anywhere will take it at this point.
0: That is absolutely, I apologise to everyone involved. What's happening next? Oh, they're making some more Transformers movies. How many? So many. Oh dear. It's been a common theme this week of Hollywood making movies that we don't really want to see. So there's Transformers sequels forever and ever and ever and ever and ever.
1: If you even think about saying Danger Mouse. I'm
0: not saying Danger Mouse. I'm very excited about Danger Mouse. But also one of the producers of Terminator Genesis has threatened there will be more on the way, that they're just going to have to recalibrate the uh, the franchise.
2: Well, no, I read a piece this week (laughs) on Birth Movies' death, which pointed out that they've now tried three times to launch a new Terminator trilogy. This is true. And three times it has failed. So maybe we should just not for a while.
0: I think they should just not for a while. However, we know the rights revert back to Cameron in 2019, so they kind of have to.
2: Or they could just not.
0: I think they should just not. You would think that the reception afforded uh, Terminator Genisys would warn them off. But the thing about Transformers is that uh, each of those films have, has been
1: gangbusters. Yeah. The thing that both these franchises have in common is, apart from the fact that they're pretty bad these days, is that they haven't done that well domestically in the US, which used to be the key benchmark and this was something we talk about more and more in the podcast, mm. but they do such big numbers in Asia in particular that it sustains them. And for something like, especially for Transformers, which is driven a lot by Hasbro's product tie-in requirements, which are also huge, it's a great way to get product out to new markets, etc., etc. So words like product, franchise, and brand balance synergy. sheets, brand synergies, and crossovers come up all the time. But it's hard to get excited, but it does make a lot of commercial sense It is for them to continue with this. Hence, they've announced four more. <laughs> And all of the top product tie-ins that come with it, because they have another audience too, don't they? They have the toy shops and yes, they do. The retailers. It's
0: going to be fascinating to see what happens here, because yes, international is becoming much more important. And in fact, some of the sequels we're seeing would only be happening are only happening with international boost. I mean, you know, Gero on the podcast that you'll hear next week talked about how Pacific Rim Two, which is on hold at the moment, but the sequel was really only happening because it was so big overseas. Yeah. it made something like 70% of its box office globally, you know, around the rest of the world, apart from the States. And that's fascinating. But at the same time, is the tail off sometimes of these franchises going to happen internationally as well? Once the rest of the world cotton's on the fact, oh, actually, this is not that great. Maybe we shouldn't see this Transformers movie because it's not that good. But who knows? We, we shall see. Or maybe there is no ceiling. Maybe they'll just keep getting bigger and bigger as cinema expands more and more in those countries. Maybe. I don't know Well, well I
2: think we're seeing some franchises do deliver diminishing returns as they destroy their own reputations and I think studios are beginning to be pretty wary of that so with, with a bit of luck everybody will work to make these really awesome as well as mm. really profitable One
0: of the things I love about this Transformers thing is and this happened a couple of weeks ago we didn't really discuss it in the podcast because it happened after we went live news broke that so Akiva Goldsman was the head of They basically they assembled a writing room to thrash out the next few Transformers movies and spin-offs and solo films and all sorts of stuff amazing writers in the room like Robert Kirkman and you know Markham and Holloway all, all people like that and then uh, Keith Goldsman appointed himself to write Transformers 5 <laughs> that's the way it looks anyway could be good he does have an Oscar after all
2: I would like to talk about Fast and Furious 8 and oh, why wouldn't you I would always like to talk about Fast and Furious you know me. There has been a little bit of up and downness with the job of directing it basically. James Wan and Justin Lin have both passed on it. How May Call It Sarah was up for the job apparently also passed. He's got other stuff on. You've got uh, James Wan's doing The Conjuring 2, Robotech and Aquaman. Justin Lin has Star Trek Beyond and Call It Sarah's doing The Shallows so they are busy. But there was a director shortlist that sort of leaked last week. It had names on it like Louis Leterrier and Erickson Core who's got the Point Break film coming out soon. Adam Wingard from you're next. But it appears and we're going by Vin Diesel's Facebook here, which is a font of truth. It appears that it is gonna be F. Gary Gray, who did the Italian job remake, and of course most recently, straight out of Compton. So he is coming mm. off by far the biggest hit I would say of his career, at least critically If not financially, I I imagine it's close to the Italian job. Anyway, that seems like a pretty good fit. He's worked with Vin Diesel before on A Man Apart in 2003. Mm -hmm. They apparently get along well. He will be the one who is tasked with making it even bigger and explodier. Good luck, sir.
0: Well, there we go. It's all very exciting. There was some speculation online that Vin Diesel might have directed himself. There was, At which yeah. point I think the film would have just disappeared into some sort of weird nexus of, I don't know, It just I, I think I've said this in the podcast before, I'm not sure that Finn is in on the joke with the Fast and Furious movies.
2: I don't necessarily think that he maybe is. However, I think that's part of what makes them as wonderful as they are. So yeah. let's never tell him.
0: It's glorious that he's the only one who isn't. Or perhaps he is and he's just, you know going on absolutely
2: cool glorious
0: well done everyone involved putting the F in Fast and Furious which apparently is going to take place in New York I believe so which is not a traffic car chase city <laughs> really mm. well that'll
2: but be the challenge there you go they'll have to just jump out of a plane there or something another little bit of franchise news before we move on Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is of course already filming in the biggest set ever built in the UK in Leaveston but it is still adding cast members so John Voigt, Gemma Chan and Carmen Edigo are the latest recruits which is good. I think it makes the cast a bit more diverse and interesting than it was looking for a minute there. And and also gives some sort of elder statesman weight to proceedings, which is also welcome. But it's, it's a fantastic lineup. I mean, you've got Eddie Redmayne obviously leading the way. Catherine Waterston lately of Inherent Vice. Dan Fogler's in there. Ezra Miller's in there. Samantha Morton is in there. It's a very, very good lineup. Yeah, looking forward to that.
0: Cool. And speaking of Warner Brothers and Ezra Miller, The Flash has a director.
2: It does. Long
0: last, and it's Seth Graham Smith.
2: The man behind Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies on the page. Mm-hmm. The man who wrote the script of Dark Shadows. Mm-hmm. Not a director on the big screen No, prior to now, it's fair to say. But he's now going to be directing a superhero movie. It's a superhero movie. Like, Ezra Miller is The Flash, don't get me wrong. That's an interesting concept. It's, it's something I'm interested in seeing. But there is a really successful Flash right now on TV. He's doing really well and I'm not quite sure why you would be so unjoined up a little bit as to have a competing flash. I guess there have been many in the comics, but still, it seems a little odd.
0: It does seem an element of the left hand doesn't really know what the right hand's doing. On the other hand, I have heard talk that there might be like a giant multiverse thing that
2: they could build a crisis on Infinite Earths yeah. or something. I guess which the theme, would be they
0: might be going towards that. so There'll be multiple flashes and multiple Batman and, and all sorts of stuff. And I mean, that, that'd be interesting. It um, would.
2: It, it would be. I mean those comics are mental
0: they have that, and Marvel don't really have that. I mean you Novahagi know, talked about opening up multiple universes with Doctor. Strange and parallel dimensions and whatnot, and you think that maybe how they might get around recasting people
2: yeah, but... but in the case of both publishers, they did these infinite Earths to deal with the problem. they did it to clear up you know half a century of conflicting ridiculous writing they Mm. did it to wipe out half of their back catalogue and make something that made sense yes why would you voluntarily bring that in if you don't need it
0: so what you're saying is you'd rather Liz Flash had Grant Gustin and was just a big screen version of a tv show
2: I mean I would kind of like a little bit more joined up thinking I guess but perhaps that is unrealistic it just it just seems like a very odd situation to me to have Two versions running at the same time in a world where we are at this point attuned to expect some kind of coherence. Okay. I'll still go see yeah. it. So, you know, it doesn't ultimately matter, I guess.
0: Absolutely. As X Men and the Flash TV show have shown recently, you can do incredible things with, and indeed the, the uh, Age of Ultron, with speedsters on the big screen these days. So yeah. it's exciting. Seth Graham Smith, I mean, I think it's fair to say we're not fans of his written work, but. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies will hopefully be good. It's oh, based on sure. his book, obviously. It is but, based on uh, his
2: book. Um, I have I have real hopes of that because I think the cast are great and they. I was actually on set and they have a great sort of look to it, a really nice sort of aesthetic to the whole thing. Yeah. Really clever casting in that as well, and and a director who seems to have a really clear vision of what he's doing. So I have real, real hopes for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I didn't like Dark Shadows. I didn't like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Let's hope the, for the best for for the Flash.
0: I think it's fair to say not many people did. So, yeah. But, you know, clean slate and all that. So fingers crossed that The Flash will be good. Phil, awesome. you've uh, anything I do? don't
1: have strong feelings on that one, but I am excited about the Danger Mouse movie that we've already touched on. Yeah, that's hugely exciting. I just love Danger Mouse. Also, some other spy news this week. Daniel uh-huh. Craig has started his, no doubt, long and arduous press tour for Spectre with an interview in which he kind of implied that he was at least weighing up his future as Bond, which isn't mm-hmm. really news to anyone, because I think we all expected this would be his penultimate film but it did sound rather as if it might even be his last from the way he was talking about it. Admittedly, he is just at the end of the process. They obviously film quite close to release, unlike other franchises, and he's probably completely knackered. And he's quite a blunt speaker. Mm -hmm. And those were his initial thoughts. There There was talk a while back of Eon making the two this bond and another bond together
2: like a back-to-back kind of yeah which other franchises has done kind of that superman sort of thing
1: pretty back, much to back the future did it obviously. yeah back like, to the future is a good example yeah. lord but of the rings i think he yeah lord of the rings the hobbit I'm not sure that was supposed to be three films <laughs> and he said that described it as madness and they were never gonna be able to do that because it's too hard who knows if he'll be back or not mm. and he said that he any advice for the next bond was just not to fuck it up <laughs>
2: he's right I mean you can't say he isn't right when he's, he's gonna, right he's right to be
0: fair no Bond yet not even Lazenby has fucked it up that's so, true you know, the movies may not have always been great but very hard to quibble with the actual Bonds so you know good luck Idris there's a man who wouldn't fuck it up if ever there was nah. one
2: He'd cancel fucking it
0: up. 007, what is he doing? He's canceling the apocalypse, sir.
2: Is that what the kids call it these (laughs) days? (laughs) Beep,
0: beep, 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 beep. Breaking news, breaking news. Yes, it's the breaking news klaxon. We spent a lot of money on that. Mm -hmm. Money well spent, believe me. It is now Friday, the day after we record the main podcast because Hollywood's done what we ask Hollywood to do repeatedly and they have released... New information, but it's information that's right up our street, isn't it? Helen, Helen's it, here it with is. me. Hello. Phil has gone to his art house apartment or Japan, one of the two. The information that came about last night: there's a whole bunch of release dates and announcements from Disney slash Pixar slash Marvel. The main one being that there's been some release date jiggery pokery mm-hmm. with Marvel because they have dropped in to their Phase Three in 2018. Ba ba ba. Ant Man Two.
2: Ant Man and the Wasp. Correct. Thank you, and that will be coming in July 2018.
0: July 2018, Ant Man and the Wasp, which is a fantastic band. I love their first <laughs> album in particular. So this would be Paul Rudd teaming up with Evangeline Lilly's Hope Fandine, or I guess we can call her Hope Pim, can't we now? She probably reclaimed that surname.
2: Maybe. Yeah. Maybe she
0: has. Maybe she hasn't. Who knows? Maybe we'll find out in Ant Man and the Wasp in July 2018. But this is this is interesting. Ant Man's done very well around the world in terms of. It's outgrows the first Captain America. It's outgrows the first Thor movie. Yeah. It's probably performed, I think, slightly better than Marvel were expecting, especially given all the hullabaloo with you know Edgar Wright leaving and whatnot. So now here we go. Ant Man and the Wasp is coming in. So this puts paid, first of all, to scurrilous rumours I'd read that Ant Man may be bumped off in Civil War.
2: Probably yeah, not then. Probably not. Unless the name is a fake out and it's actually going to be The Wasp. Probably in,
0: not. Indeed. Well, it could be Hank Pym as Ant-Man. We don't know.
2: Oh, we don't know. That's true, it's but just unlikely. A suit.
0: It's just a suit. That's happening and it is the first, it's going to be the first Marvel movie, Cinematic Universe movie, to have a female superhero in the title. Yes. It took them eight years. No, ten years. <laughs> ten years, but ten you years. Know, they're getting there.
2: It does mean that Black Panther has moved to, it will be February now of 2018, so the it's same year forward. but before that. Sorry. It's come forward. It's come forward. But Captain Marvel is March 2019.
0: Captain Marvel, which was going to be the first. Female superhero name thing for Marvel sure. is now going to be the second.
2: But for solo.
0: For solo one, of course, Jessica Jones is the first solo one on the TV, and that's coming out in November. Sure. And I do wonder if that means that that's a tough enough for them to crack than maybe they thought.
2: I mean, I don't see why it would be, to be perfectly honest, but it may just be that they feel like Ant Man did so much better than they expected that yes. they want to just capitalize on that as quick as possible
0: yes okay so we're, we're now in phase three we're going to hit phase three with captain america civil war then it's doctor strange then it's guardians of the galaxy volume two then it's thor ragnarok those are both in 2017 then it's black panther avengers infinity war part one ant-man and the wasp captain marvel was then going to happen i think black panther moved forward so that's black panther was a later one in 2018 so that's gonna uh-huh. moved forward and then 2019 is avengers infinity war part one captain marvel and the inhumans is in there as well
2: I I believe so, yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think that's it. If we're missing anything out, then please remove my Marvel gun and badge. And then 2020, they've announced three more Marvel movies to come in 2020, but they haven't released the titles yet. So you can speculate away, but who knows, it might be.
2: It's actually quite exciting that having planted the flag for three more movies in Mm -hmm. 2020, you know, is that further Caps, further Thors? Is it another Iron Man? Probably not with Robert Downey Jr., but is it another Iron Man?
0: Could be. You don't know. We don't know. We don't know. It could be a Hulk movie at long last. It It could could be. It could be Black Widow. It could be Coulson. It could be... We we don't know is what we're saying. Some other Disney... Release date stuff your so The Incredibles 2 now has a firm date. It's going to be in, in June 2019, which is very, very good. Cars 3 is coming out in 2017. Coco, which is Lee Unkridge's movie, which was formerly known as the, the Day of the Dead movie, Dia mm-hmm. de, uh, de los Muertos. It's my... Muy bien. Page. Thank you very much. It's going to be in November 2017 as well. So it's going to be more Pixar stuff as well, stepping up over the next few years. And then Toy Story 4 is going to hit in 2018. Lots of release date things happening. It's all, very, it's all very exciting. But you excited about Anna and the Wasp?
2: I am. I would like... I, I felt like she was massively... Underdeveloped. I thought what was there was interesting last time but there wasn't very much there so I look forward to them giving her a bit more to do and seeing a little bit more sort of back and forth with Paul Rudd assuming he survives Civil War of course <laughs> I can't believe you would even suggest such a thing it's just no, no fine. it's a nonsense
0: rumour I read somewhere
2: I still want my Black Widow movie I still want Captain Marvel this'll do to be going on with
0: this'll do to be going on with and then obviously you know we, we can talk about this until the cows come home about what happens after Avengers what happens after the big five all have their contracts run out and they're all getting on a little bit downy will be in his 50s and will they reboot will they recast will they bring in a female Thor a black Captain America a younger Tony Stark you know are they going to take those nods from the comics or are they going to go in, in different directions who knows and we won't find out for a few years yet but exciting times indeed if you like Marvel movies if you don't then I apologise for the breaking news bit. but back yeah, <laughs> we were trying to regularly schedule programming Helen if you just want to press the button on the breaking news klaxon ok
2: yeah. pressing the button now beep beep
0: beep 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 breaking news Beep, beep, beep,
2: beep, beep. This is... mm.
0: so let's have our next guest. Robert Zemeckis is one of Empire's favourite directors with movies like Castaway, Romance in a Stone, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Contact and the Back to the Future trilogy under his belt. Can you blame us? You can't. No. You can't. You can't blame us. Uh, his new movie is The Walk, which recreates the walk that Philip Petit took in 1974. It wasn't just a Sunday stroll, though. This was a tightrope walk between the Twin Towers of the World Trade Centre. Zemeckis came into London last week and Phil and I went along to speak to him. Enjoy. Uh, We're delighted to be joined on The Empire Podcast by Robert Zemeckis, director of The Walk. How are you, sir? I'm very
5: good. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Now, this film, I have a crippling fear of heights. I'm one of those guys, if I'm walking up a a staircase, I have to cling on to the stairs and and ground myself just in case. I launch myself over over the edge. And the last 25 minutes of this movie has garnered an incredible reaction, not just for me. I felt mm-hmm. absolutely terrified during it. I've read online reports of people almost passing out, people mm-hmm. almost throwing up.
5: Is that what you were going for? Is that the- <laughs> No. I don't want anyone to throw up in a movie theater. <laughs> that's not a that's not a very nice wait thing. until you get to the lobby. Yeah, the least. Yeah. <laughs> but the mission was to to present this high wire feat from a perspective that, you know, we never get to see put the audience on the wire with Philippe and show it basically from his point of view.
0: And where did you get the idea for that? If you go on YouTube, there's some amazing footage, for example, lots of people who climb up buildings freestyle, Mm -hmm. sometimes in Russia, and they they film themselves walking out onto really, really Mm -hmm. precarious ledges and Mm -hmm. whatnot. Did you watch any of that stuff to get an idea of heights and
5: perspective? Watched some of that, watched horrible YouTube footage of wire walkers plummeting to their death. You know, the problem is, of course, is that those YouTube videos, they're usually GoPro cameras or something like that, that they've got strapped on themselves and that sort of thing we wanted to um, present the walk with all the emotion attached to it but not see it only from the street which is where most people had to see it from but from other perspectives and you know sort of evoke the the feeling that Philippe has told me for many many years what it felt like for him to be out there
1: something I discovered today you probably know this but that has kind of tickled me was that Philippe Petit when he did the walk Number one in the box office was Death Wish. Oh. Below him was playing Death Wish. There, he was yeah. up there kind of living it That's out. That's very funny. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing, but he hated the word death And in, in the film you showed. Yeah, show.
5: yeah. He doesn't like that word death. He would say that to me. He hated when people asked him if he had a death wish for doing this because he didn't ever consider the fact that he would not survive. Is there a word that troubles you in the same way as a filmmaker? I mean, aside, aside from like, no, obviously. Yeah, no is probably the worst one. No, I don't have a word phobia. Nothing that, I'm racking my brain here, <laughs> but nothing that comes to mind. No. no. Okay.
1: Do you remember from the prism of yourself at the time, this story? Was it a New York story or was it an American one no, story?
5: No, it was everywhere in America, but I was in film school. So I was cut off from the real world. I miss this for some reason I didn't see this or hear about this when it really happened I caught up with this later I kind of imagine where Forrest Gump might have been at that moment and how he would have Yeah, I don't know. He might have been down on the street there somewhere, probably, you know, doing something, who knows. (laughs) Um, So when did you actually get in touch with Philippe? Was it before Man on Wire? Oh yeah, it was about 10 years ago. I read his book and got in touch with Philippe. He came out to California and we had a long dinner and, you know, I sort of laid out my idea to make a movie of this and and that started this long, arduous process.
0: How long and arduous was it? I mean, when did you intend to make it initially?
5: Well, I, I intended to make it Back then, you know, obviously, I didn't expect it to take this long to get financed and, and brought to the screen. But it was about a two-year process to develop the screenplay and the story, and then it's taken all these years to get it finally brought to the screen.
0: Because ten years ago, I would have put it right in the middle of just after the Polar Express, just as you were about to embark. I guess no, much Beowulf. later.
5: No, much later than that. It would have been because I developed it. I had my deal at Disney, and I and they're the ones who acquired the material for me, mm-hmm. Philippe's life story. So, yeah, it was way after Polo. Polo Express was 2004. Mm -hmm.
0: But it's still around that time when you were working still very much in that sort of Mm -hmm. performance capture Mm -hmm. arena. Mm -hmm.
5: Was the idea, uh, even back then, to
0: do it live action? Was that the only way to really
5: No, I was considering everything. I was considering everything. And I was able to use my performance capture studio to do little uh, animatic scenes for this movie. And, you know, I had actors come in and work the scenes out. And then I would shoot them with a camera, you know, virtual camera and cut them and kind of built like a huge animatic. of of almost the entire movie. Can we talk a little bit
1: about the 3D in the context of 3D? Because obviously it's a useful tool for filmmakers, but a lot of filmmakers, it's more of an add-on, it feels, Mm -hmm. rather than integral to the actual storytelling. Just, can you maybe talk about how sort of important the 3D is to this particular story?
5: Right, well from the get-go, from the very beginning, I saw this as a 3D movie. So when I was shooting the movie, the 3D was always designed from the beginning, everything was designed to accommodate the 3D. And you know, that's very important, and you know, my belief is that 3D is an emotional decision that a filmmaker makes in the beginning, you know, when he decides what sort of format he's going to make his movie in. The job is, of course, to enhance the emotional story, but this was always going to be in 3D, and I thought it would be a story that was made for 3D. This is the kind of thing that 3D does really, really well.
0: I imagine this movie appealed for several reasons. One, Philippe's story is amazing. Two, the opportunity to really convey height and depth on the big screen in a way that we haven't really seen before. Back in 2006, just five years after 9-11, how much did the actual idea of almost paying tribute to the Twin Towers themselves, how much did that lodge in your mind?
5: No, I always intended it to be a love letter to the Twin Towers because that's what it was when Philippe did it. Philippe always referred to the Towers as living entities he always referred to them as his partners in this performance i took my cue from that and i thought that's what we should do is we should just celebrate the towers we don't have to only remember them in tragedy we can remember something that was actually very poetic that happened there as well it's also kind of a love letter to the statue of liberty isn't it which was
1: a gift from the French but the French yeah to the Americans and you've made the point that Philippe was kind of another gift right although it not according to the, probably the New York Police Department in the immediate okay. aftermath but right right, right. So I, I'm interested in in that framing device of having Joseph Gordon-Levitt up on the torch delivering a narrative sort of direct to camera right. and, and how that sort of played out for you as a director and your relationship with him as an actor how long that took to shoot how you directed
5: it? We shot everything on the uh, Statue of Liberty in one day. You know, that's where he's just great. You know, he's astoundingly great at, well, he's great at everything, but he's really great at, what, how should I say this, hosting a movie. We just knocked that stuff off. You know, he was really into it. He, the idea of it was, you know, something I think that Philippe would do, you know, doing something poetic and outrageous. That's what he does. When I wrote that, I thought, well, this is something Philippe would do. Philippe would say, oh, you want me to tell the story of the towers? Look, here's what we should do. Let's yeah. go up to the top of the Statue of Liberty because the towers will be right behind me. It'll be a lovely backdrop, and so that's sort of, sort of where the idea came from. I think it's it sort of sets the tone for this sort of fanciful story that you know is about this guy.
1: How important is it that the audience liked him as a character? Because you mentioned he's passionate and single-minded, mm-hmm. and a creator and a free spirit. But he also had another side to him, didn't he? He could be sort of selfish, and he did things that were unfortunate, I guess, in the immediate aftermath. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your sort of take on that? And, And did that character change during different iterations of the
3: script?
5: Well, you know, the character that I thought the audience can identify with is the one that I portrayed. I've always subscribed to Alfred Hitchcock's answer to that question. You know, Hitchcock was asked this story about Cary Grant because he was a jewel thief. And people were saying, how can you expect us to identify and root for this character? Because, you know, he's a thief. And Alfred Hitchcock said, audiences love characters that are good at their jobs. And I think... That for the audience to be engaged with Philippe at the end when he's on the wire and to be riveted to him and his plight in the whole thing can only work if you're with the character. So, however, the movie developed Philippe. You know, the audience is obviously with him. And I don't think they want him to fall off the building at the end. <laughs> the audience, I hope, identifies with his passion and his need to accomplish this dream at any cost. And finding the right actor, was that tricky?
0: Ten years ago, nine years ago, 2006, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was just about, at that stage in his career, I think he was just coming off Third Rock from the Sun and he was still making his way as a, right. as a film actor still. Uh, so I imagine he wasn't necessarily in your thoughts. No,
5: you really can't get yourself engaged in until, you, you know, you're making the movie. Until you have a start date, you really can't engage an actor. So once I got the start date, that's when I thought of Joseph. So I'm fatalistic about these things, you know, because I actually believe that movies get made when they're supposed to get made. And I think that being able to make it with Joseph was, you know, fortuitous in that. Also, probably the technology evolved to a place where I could make the movie for a lot less money than I would have been able to 10 years ago. It's all as it should be.
0: There's something about Joseph's charm and his energy and his dexterity. I mean, Mm -hmm. he can slip between drama and comedy very, very adroitly that reminds me of of michael j fox Mm -hmm. back in the day is that something that, that sprang to mind when you were watching him
5: well i think those are all actors that i just personally think that you know having that dexterity as you say and that's exactly the right way to put it i think no matter what an actor is doing he has to be flexible i find that most actors who are the best dramatic actors are able to do comedy because it's all about timing. Everything's about timing. And if you're good at comedy, you can be magnificent in doing drama. So I believe that Joe is one of those guys who fits that bill. I might be completely talking
1: out of my hat on this one. Did I notice a Forrest Gump Easter egg? A reference to someone who works on a shrimp boat
5: in the script? No, the character of Albert actually did work on a shrimp boat. It's a coincidence. My roommate at USC, Worked on a shrimp boat and he came from, you know, Brooklyn, New York. I don't know where this shrimp boat thing is going in my life, but it's a coincidence that happens because I bet you've never met anyone who worked on a shrimp boat. No. No, but I have. I so have isn't them. that interesting? That is. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The heist
1: movie dimension is, is, is pretty thrilling when they're, when they're breaking into the Twin Towers. Did you have 70s movie inspirations? You know, oh, yeah. French Connection oh, yeah. Very much. Pelham
5: 123. Yeah. Pelham 123, definitely. Because that was sort of a golden age of filming in new york in the early 70s late 60s early 70s yeah palm one two three was definitely a movie that i referenced before i started shooting this what a good movie it is too it's a great movie. Uh,
1: and they remade it and they ruined the ending. No, the original is fantastic. So good. Yeah, it's so great. Yeah. yeah. Are there any others that our listeners should check out that they may not know?
5: Yeah, Dog Day Afternoon. It's not a heist movie, but it certainly gives you the flavor of New York in that era. The French Connection, Prince of the City, Serpico. You know, you can just tick them off. You know, <laughs> you know that was the golden age of gritty uh, New York street films in American cinema.
0: Just uh, grab your Sydney Lumet box set and uh, away you go. (laughs) Right, right.
5: Uh, Bob, this is a
0: complete and utter coincidence, but I don't know if you've noticed, I'm wearing a Jaws 19 I see that, yeah, exactly. Um, I promise you I put this on today, just randomly, and then Mm -hmm. when I realized I was going to speak to you later on, I just left it on. Obviously, I'm sure you can get this a lot. It's... 2015, October 21st, 2015 is nearly upon us. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that date hold a special significance in your life? Or are you going to be <laughs> no, celebrating
5: no. it in any way? No, no. Well, you know, unfortunately, I'm maybe fortunately, <laughs> I'm going to be probably in Japan okay. to promote the walk. We knew we had to pick a date that was 30 years in the future from 1985. That was the easy part. We were originally scheduled to start shooting the movie in October, so we said, well, it should be October. We just found a date that had a good ring to it, so. Nothing more mysterious than that. I don't know if there's any numerology, numerologists dissecting that date or anything. Could be, probably. Uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? I'm sure you yeah, can right. do all sorts of things
0: with, with numbers if you have the time and the patience. Right. Exactly. You can make them make anything. In terms of Back to the Future too, I spoke to Bob Gale recently. Just the number of things that you guys got right mm-hmm. in your predictions about 2015. It's pretty astonishing, it has to be said. Yeah,
5: we, I think we hit about 50%. Yeah, which is yeah, bad. which is pretty astonishing. And they were all just jokes. They were all just jokes. So does that mean life is just a joke? <laughs> no, you know, so- maybe that's you know, maybe that's the best way to just think about the future. <laughs> What's going to happen? That's going to be hilarious.
0: I'm afraid at this point we haven't got to the point where we got the black and decker rehydrator. That would be a big uh, boon right. to my life. Bob Gale was pointing out that you you predicted drones. The yeah. USA Today uh,
5: photo drone. Exactly. Is that the thing you're most proud of? I mean, that's uh, way out. there. No, I mean I'm the most proud of the hoverboard. Because I'm excited that that exists, actually. Do you have one? No, because you know you have to have a complete, like, you know, metal floor to make it work. I mean, you know, it's, it doesn't work as well as the one in the movie.
0: Okay, they exist. They, they exist, right. and of course, one thing that doesn't exist—just I, uh, I found a reference to my T-shirt—is Jaws 19. But my reckoning, Max Spielberg has about three
1: weeks to make 14 movies. <laughs> right, right? Can you chivvy him along
0: a bit? Can you can you nudge him in the
1: in the ribs? Yeah, I'll try say- my best. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you at when you finished promoting the movie? Is it? Have you got the
5: next project in your mind? Yeah, I'm going to do a movie with something completely different, which uh, I always like to do. I'm going to do a uh, romantic thriller with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard. I'm going to make it all here in London, and it's a World War
1: II story. Interesting yeah. it's a romantic thriller set as the bombs rain down exactly what a great setting for a film Yeah, can you fill us in on any news with the back to the future
5: stage production? Is there any, any development the only development is that it's in development Fair enough You're
0: a massive Beatles fan Bob. We, we, we spoke about mm-hmm. this the last time you were on the Empire podcast You must have been to Abbey Road.
5: I haven't I actually been to the studio We pre-recorded all the source music for Roger Rabbit there, but I didn't, like, go get my picture taken crossing the road. (laughs) You didn't take your shoes and socks off? I did not do that or walk on my hands or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I have no memory of standing there in the spot. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I wasn't (laughs) thinking, but I was actually in the studio and worked in the studio. Wow. Did you feel a sense of... Yeah, the ghosts are in there. you You get all that. You feel the vibe in there. Yeah. Studio two. But there are all these guys say that about all the great studios. <laughs> they say that about the Sun Studio. They say that about, you know, muscle shoals. They say that everywhere. But it was cool. Have you been to Liverpool? Have you done anything like that? Haven't been to Liverpool. Okay, that's on my list. I'm sensing an itinerary forming for you. next Well, time you right know, here. listen, I'll be I'll be able to like go on the weekend when I'm working here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah, a lovely place. Zip over there. Right? There's, a, there's a museum. There's a that's cabin right. water. There's there's that's all right. sorts of stuff. It's right. it's pretty amazing. I would like to see that. There's John's boyhood home is a museum. I understand. It is. Yeah. Yoko was telling me about that, and she said <laughs> that she's very proud of that, and she said that I would love it. I would definitely <laughs> have to go see that. Can I just say that may be the best name drop in the history <laughs> yeah. of this podcast that is
0: extraordinary yeah. <laughs> because you obviously the Beatles runs through your career uh, from I want to hold your hand to Yellow Submarine which sadly yeah, still right. isn't no nah, it's never gonna it's happen it's not gonna happen okay right. so but you made a, a video for Golden Slumbers is, is that
5: right? yeah, was a, a film I made on my own when I was a kid in Chicago and was inspired by that song that was actually a, a film I made and I think it was one of them that I submitted to the USC film squad I think it might have gotten me in. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Okay, what are your memories of it? Of the movie? Yeah, of Golden Slumbers now.
5: Just got a bunch of friends of mine and we were running through a cornfield and and I shot it in 16 millimeter and that was a big deal. That's pretty amazing. Must have cost a bit for a young But I had a job at a production company who did sort of industrial films. And so I was able to use their editing equipment for free. And the last thing,
0: uh, Bob, before we let you go is, I'm sure everyone on the planet has been asking you this. How's your head for heights?
5: (laughs) I'm fine with heights. I have no problem with heights. If there's a ledge, it creeps me out. But if I'm like in an airplane, it doesn't bother me. Oh, airplanes are fine. Once you are contained, you're okay. See, it's the ledge. You see, it's not the distance because you know you would think that if you're so. Do you have a problem looking out of an airplane window? No. See, why is that?
0: I think it's because the sense of containment. Or there's no ledge. Or there's no. I'd never thought of that. Right. I'd never thought of. That. I'm going to explore that. Right. Thanks. Mm. Thanks a lot, Robert Smekas. Right. It's been an thank absolute you. pleasure. Thank you so All much. Right, thank you. Yeah. So there you have it, Bobby Smekas. Bobby C, a huge Beatles fan, has never been to Liverpool. Right, OK, so let's talk about this week's reviews now, and let's start with our film of the week, which is not Suffragette, which is very good, Willow Walk, which is good, but Sicario.
2: Which is brill. Mm. Brillo, frankly. Okay, so this is Denis Villeneuve directing Emily Blunt, most notably. She plays an FBI sort of kidnap response specialist. She's kind of the leader of a SWAT team when we first see her. And her name is Kate Macer. And she is basically going on a raid into this house where they expect to find some drug dealers who have taken some people hostage. What they instead find is a total house of horrors, a certain number of, of booby traps in a very, very tough, amazingly put together scene. In the wake of this she is offered the chance to work with this specialist team who are fighting the war on drugs and she immediately leaps at the chance given everything she's just seen she wants to be more involved she wants to be doing more to combat this to tackle this issue so she begins to work with josh brolin and Benito del toro basically now brolin has a role he's a defense advisor she's told he's kind of it becomes clear he's kind of cia del toro you have no idea what this guy is doing there he's clearly important He's clearly doing something. Brawling clearly relies on him and you just don't know why. And neither does Kate. And so a lot of the film is basically her trying to figure out what her own team is up to because she is not in the loop on any of this, really. So it's basically them trying to put together this response in the wake of this atrocity and trying to do something and she's not sure what it is. I'm not going to discuss it, obviously, because that would be to give too much away. But it does involve, for example, crossing the border to Ciudad Juárez where... There is one of the better action scenes that I think you'll see in the in the last few years, never mind this year, in a traffic jam, by the way. It's very, very well done. It's a difficult film to talk about because I can't <laughs> say too much. But, drama, uh,
0: intrigue. Uh, drama, people intrigue. People double-crossing, or maybe not double-crossing. Or crossing, maybe not double-crossing. Who knows? Exactly. It's fantastic. It's gripping.
2: Very um, much so. Uh, yeah. And it's gorgeously shot. Uh, we should mention this. the For, Deeks by the Deeks by Roger Deakins nobody calls him that Chris you're just making up all these nicknames
0: pretty sure people call him the Deeks
2: <laughs> alright so the Deeks shot this it's going to be I actually think one of the most interesting Oscar races this year is going to be cinematographer because Roger Deakins has never won which is an outrage and this is an incredibly well shot film there's one shot of some people walking over a hill that's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen he's but never he's never won and he's up against The Revenant, which is shot entirely with natural light. And no, Yeah, no, he's not going to win. And everyone's going to go nuts <laughs> for that. And yeah. it's going to be a uh-huh. third one in a row for no, Lubezki. Yeah,
0: no, it's it's now just become the Emmanuel Lubezki. Give me that. Give me that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give that. Me. yeah, just have it.
2: I mean, you know, so maybe they might go for Deacons because it is an outrage that he hasn't won. But it's going to be a really interesting race. Don't
0: rule out Heute van Heitema.
2: He is a very good cinematographer. I don't know. I think this year he's up against two giants.
0: And Dan Lauston's work on Crimson Peak is fantastic as well. Yeah. Anyway. And it
2: is a really tense, murky, morally complicated film, this. It does keep your attention because you're not quite sure what's going on you're trying all the time to figure it out. But it also deprives you of information a lot of the way through in the same way that Kate is deprived. And I think there is a bit of a weakness as a result with her character because I think you know Emily Blunt is so good at injecting just a touch of lightness and just a touch of a breath of fresh air really into mm-hmm. anything she does even something like Edge of Tomorrow where she's very very tough and very you know on point the whole time and she almost doesn't get the chance here she's so buttoned up that it doesn't feel like Emily Blunt in any way which is not to say that it's a bad performance because it's a very good one but it's not what you go in expecting you expect a little bit more of her in there somehow I think
1: yeah it reminded me a lot of Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty very much which so. is an obvious parallel yes. I suppose and they are very different characters but they're both I suppose very very strong women in predominantly anarchic men's worlds and they're mm. trying to navigate that and pilot that and I thought what was interesting about Blunt who's incredibly good at communicating without dialogue in this movie is that she does sort of retreat into herself and it's that thing of your protagonist becoming more and more distant it's quite an unusual thing as an audience member because she's the person you're travelling through you're reliant upon her to guide you through this incredibly complicated moral maze and this incredibly complicated issue Zero Dark Thirty is quite an interesting sort of companion piece to this because you remember all of the controversy about whether or not Catherine Bigelow was justifying waterboarding to get information that led to Bin Laden this is kind of trying to tackle the same thing Mm. and I think maybe Bigelow's Triple, was it Triple Frontier? Mm-hmm. Which was set in South America rather than Central America. It was equally trying to tackle that complexity. And yeah. it's not new stuff because America's been fighting these, trying to work out its moral compass on these issues for such a long time now. But it is such a cinematic treatment of, of the issue with, like you say, with the Deeks's cinematography and these incredible, like, Heat, Michael Mann style set pieces. Yeah. And it feels like a real throwback to. I wish there were more movies like this because it's challenging and interesting and you come away thinking about it and it's so visual. And, you're, and these sequences are just incredibly taut. Yeah, yeah,
2: seriously. Taut is
1: almost a cliche talking about, but they are. You, you kind of like clench watching them yeah. and they go on for so long, they almost become mini movies. I love this film. I think after Mad Max, it's probably my favourite of the year. Holy Jesus. Oh, I know that's, that's big talk, but big I'm gonna st- probably going to stand by it because we are now in October, aren't we?
0: And you've seen Steve Jobs, not to give too much away. I know you signed <laughs> Oh but...
1: Can't talk about that. Can't talk um, about it. Totally embargoed. You've
0: signed an I embargo. I embargoed. I embargoed.
1: I totally agree with you. Right? Yeah. I think it's a real doozy. I think, yeah, we've given it five. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are giving it maybe fours. I just feel that there's, there's a lot more. It'll stand second and third viewings.
2: I think so too. I think it's also interesting that Villeneuve was initially asked when he was shopping the script around Hollywood to change the, the sex of the lead character, to change her to a man. It's interesting that for a lot of the film... You know, it could be either. It's not a particularly, she's not a girly figure by any means. There are some scenes that you would lose the same sense of being an outsider and the same slight vulnerability that underlies her sort of toughness. And I think you would lose something. I think it does add something very much to the film, makes it feel a little bit less like we've seen it before. Which, I mean, elements of it we have. You know, we've seen films about the war on drugs. We've seen films about contra- counter-terrorism task force mm. and this kind of thing. But this feels fresher and less like those films largely because of Blunt, I think. And obviously because of the way it's shot and, and didn't yeah. and, and dealt with. I think well,
1: Feds on runways next to private jets is almost sort of shorthand in this, <laughs> isn't it? Deserted aircraft hangars and important conversations but mm. it's fresh enough and yeah. new enough that it kind of shakes off some of those kind of cliches, I suppose. Definitely.
0: Uh, yep. Yeah, fantastic. Five stars then for Sicario. I found something really interesting because I was just about to say, because we were talking about DPs in the race for the Oscars and I was going to say don't rule out the person who shot Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 <laughs> as a joke Roger Deacons. it's Dean Semler oh no it's Dean Semler one of the great cinematographers He won an Oscar for Dances with Wolves shot Mad Max 2 shot Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome Dances with Wolves Waterworld Dead Calm wow. some amazing films City Slickers obviously This his last movie Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. How does that happen? Oh, there's a this scene. film before that was Maleficent, so to maybe... Just shoot a scene, scene where Paul just...
1: block gets attacked by a goose.
0: His next film Spoiler. is the, the Ridiculous Six and The Last Witch Hunter, so kind of baffling sometimes. So, yeah, but, you know, hey, mm. got to eat. Five stars for Sicario, film of the week, and a very commendable second place, I'm guessing, not to be rank these, but it uh, goes to Suffragette. Who wishes to talk about Suffragette? Helen! Uh, yes, no, chained yourself to the microphone. I
2: have, <laughs> yes. Um, that's on Monday coming. This is a film that, that surprisingly hasn't been told a million times because it is, you know, a fairly sort of introduction to suffrage suffragism, I think it is. And it is the story of Carrie Mulligan's Maud, who is a washerwoman in sort of turn of the 20th century London. And she is married, she has a son, she works every day in the laundry, she's not particularly political. There's a, an element of curiosity about what she's seeing in the news, which is the increasingly violent and increasingly forceful suffragette movement. But she's not really one of them. But in <coughs> conjunction with a friend who works at the same awful, awful factory that she does, she becomes politicised. And you see that the film is basically her slow evolution from really kind of innocent bystander to someone absolutely at the heart of the movement and very much fighting for women's right to, among other things, vote. It does feel like an introductory piece. This feels like everything that happened to the suffragettes happens to this group of women. She falls in with a sort of a mixed group, including working women like herself, including slightly more middle class women like Helena Bonham Carter's chemist who is not herself allowed to practice as a chemist, she has to have her her husband essentially act as a front for her. You've got Romola Garai, who's married to a politician, so she's slightly more wealthy again, more influential again, but also stifled by the the sort of conventions of the time. And then in a very tiny supporting role, you have Meryl Streep as Emmeline Pankhurst, the leader of the movement and sort of martyr to the cause, who is at this point in hiding and barely able to show her face in public because the weight of the state is after her, and this is interesting because it does portray the suffragettes as a very political movement. This is not the cosy, you know, housewife from Mary Poppins who's going out on a march wearing a lovely ribbon round her chest. These women are call them freedom fighters or terrorists, whatever you want to do. But they are smashing windows up and down Regent Street. They are bombing houses. They are
0: attacking cereal bars
2: attacking cereal bars they have become militant as a result of 50 years of polite protest doing absolutely nothing it's kind of an interesting thing to see because you don't see women in that role very often and it was interesting yesterday you had abby morgan at the press conference saying that it's actually quite hard to get a film made where you've got a female ensemble cast and they're not being funny and they're not being romantic and it is it's very unusual to see a film like this so full credit to them for making it and i hope that it sparks many, many more in the same vein. I mean, all good performances here. I think, you know, Kerry Mulligan is obviously the person you want at the heart of something like this. She's another actress like Emily Blunt who's very good at saying a lot without saying anything at all. Mm. When you do also give her a line, she obviously knocks it out of the park. But Anne Marie Duff, I think, is maybe the standout for me. She's a friend at the laundry. You know, she's meant to be a little bit older. She's got a teenage daughter herself who has also just started work there. She's the one who's more, the more political and the more kind of forceful of the two. But she's also in tougher circumstances in many ways because she's got more kids, she's got more to lose. It's a really tough film to watch at times. If I have a criticism, it would be that I think it, it does try to in some ways do too much I think it tries to introduce us to the whole history of the movement in one film it's too overly familiar to have the person who doesn't know anything and comes in and has to learn everything and that's our way into this movement I feel like we could have been trusted to understand that a woman's right to vote is an important thing and just go from there with people already sort of radicalised but at the same time it's an aesthetic choice and maybe this way allows more people to see this film to draw parallels to the situation we're in now and gives it a bit more impact because there's a subplot involving sexual abuse and sexual assault which is barely dealt with by the characters in the film they clearly don't see it as something worth talking about, worth politicising, it's not a political issue to them and the fact that that is a very political issue nowadays draws a nice contrast that I think has shows how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Really really interesting film, we give it four stars
1: Indeed. It's quite a modern looking film as well. Hmm. It's very unhandsome, unperiod in that sense. It's about as far away from sort of Downton Abbey aesthetic <laughs> as you can get. It's more of a, I don't want to name check a male director necessarily, but there aren't too many women that have made that sort of Paul Greengrass docu-handheld thing. And it has that kind of feel to it. I know The Battle of Algiers was a reference point for them. Just the way it shows that, you know, they were modern, forward thinking, and it feels kind of relatable to modern times as well
2: i think it's also quite good that they don't completely demonize the male powers put against them i mean they're obviously wrong by modern standards you know totally and utterly in the wrong but someone like brendan gleason's character who's one of the policemen who's tracking these women down and really tracking them and and surveilling them and trying to see who their friends are and then tracking them as well but he's not doing it because he's an evil man who wants to keep women down he's a man who wants to uphold the law because that's his job and i think there's a nice sort of subtlety there which it might not have had if it had been made you know a few years ago i thought that was good uh ben Wishaw's character however is thoroughly awful so you know <laughs> no points for that some people wear.
0: What a total Q unit. That's all I have to say in that. <laughs> so, four stars in for Suffragette, and let's move on next to The Walk, which came out last week on IMAX screens, but it's getting a wide release this week.
1: It's not a film for acrophobics. It has a lot to recommend it. It's, Zemeckis again feels like almost has this kind of to try and move the medium forward technically. He's done it again in this case. Obviously the story of Philippe Petit, as we've mentioned, the subject of James Marsh's Oscar winning documentary Man and Wire, which is a great film, and I I think a lot of people's first reaction to this is why are you doing it again and why is it being done again? And I think the answer is probably that Zemeckis is able to put his camera somewhere that James Marsh's documentary couldn't, which is actually on the wire. So it does feel like a lot of this film is set up for that particular sequence. So you'll hear a lot of people also who have seen it saying the last 30 minutes is virtuoso and breathtaking and terrifying. What comes before it, a little less so, it's quite broad at times it feels almost a little cartoony Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance as Petit I think is very diligent he varies from speaking in French to speaking in a French accent that as our review pointed out tiptoes sometimes towards Pepe Country it is a little, a bit, little Arthur, bit
0: Arthur Bostrom isn't it a Good Morning yes. I was just pissing and I thought I'd drip in exactly it's a bit listen like that.
2: very carefully I will yeah. say this I
1: Charlotte Le Bon, who plays petite girlfriend, there's a sequence in which Joseph Gordon-Levitt is speaking to her in a heavy French accent as an American actor. She's a French Canadian actress talking to him in an American accent. It's just <laughs> jarring. It's got a sort of slightly kind of American in Paris vibe to it. Like you're almost on a soundstage throughout when they're in France preparing for this but the actual coup as he calls it the walk across from one side of the Twin Towers and back the build up to that doesn't deviate too far from James Marsh's grand plan which was to show it as a heist movie and I think they probably both have similar reference points we talk about them in the podcast yeah in the interview the sort of dog day afternoon Serpico French connection it's all in there what I found interesting was that
0: they seem to be developed separately Smek has told us that he started working on this about yes. 10 years ago which is before Man on yes. Wire came
1: out I assumed that he had seen Man on Wire went oh okay
0: but no Seems
1: to be a different way around. No, but he obviously powered through the bit where he saw Man and One and thought, bugger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I and made uh, And <laughs> I carried my diary over here. And, and you can see why, because it is that last half an hour that, that you're in it for it. You feel like you haven't been to a place like that before in a film. For that alone, it's a recommendation in three stars. A lot of what comes around it, the framing mechanism of having Petit narrating his own story, mm-hmm. it's a little broad at times, but a lot in the final act that's well worth sticking around for.
0: Absolutely. Monto. Uh, three stars for the walk. The last 25 minutes I thought was... I mean, yeah, it didn't... Some people have apparently been passing out and vomiting and stuff but I don't think heights have ever really been exploited on the big screen. If you go on YouTube and you type in people climbing up buildings and stuff and parkour on top of buildings and you've seen these videos over the years of people climbing up incredibly tall towers mm-hmm. with the GoPro cameras in their heads and there are also these kids, mostly in Russia weirdly enough, who climb up, freestyle up these buildings and they have cranes and stuff jutting out into the distance and there's literally a drop of like several feet and the way they film it it absolutely makes your palms go sweaty it's just that's terrifying to me no film I think has come close to even conveying that terror until the last few minutes yeah. of, of this and obviously you know he lives and blah 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 but I think as a technical exercise it's really really good it's also shot by Darius Wolski who is Ridley's God's go-to guy at the moment he shot Prometheus a Cancer, Exits, Gods and Kings and The Martian and his next film is Part Mall Cop 3 <laughs> so there's... no it's not, it's not.
1: Um, <laughs> just, just in case people start reporting those news Absolutely, it's like Hitchcock's famous Dolly reverse zoom in, in Vertigo. It's another way of showing this terror. Absolutely, terror. In new dimension of the walk. in terror. So then, three stars for the walk, and that is it for this week's
0: Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by maybe Christian Slater, which isn't bad, not at all, or maybe it's someone else. Mm. <gasps> We shall see. Look out for a whole bunch of specials coming your way. Also out as of this podcast in its bumper package deal, we have a pan special dedicated to Joe Wright's pan where we've interviewed everybody in the cast seemingly. So we have interviews with Hugh Jackman, Garrett Hedlund, Levi Miller, Rooney Mara and Joe Wright himself. So that's all very, very exciting. The film's out next week. Next week, we have the long awaited Mad Max Fury Road spoiler special with a mammoth, and I mean mammoth, interview with George Miller in that one, plus three idiots sitting around talking about the film. Helen, obviously I've excluded you from that. Uh No, you're in that group. And the Guillermo del Toro Crimson Peak interview special. It's not a discussion about the film. It's a spoiler special. It's It's not one of those. It's an interview special. That'll be up next week as well. And then there's the usual one as well. And we're trying to make a Spectre one happen. We shall see where we are with that one. So look out for loads. Do enjoy them. We're all excellent. In their own special ways So until next week Or until the next podcast It's goodbye from Helen Toodle. It's goodbye from Phil Cheerio And it's goodbye from me I'm off to fight a duck called Tom Hardy Fancy my chances that one
2: I don't know No I think
0: No you're right I'd lose See you next week